0: Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today I have Trina Tzederos with me, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina.
1: Great to be here, Ben.
0: Well, Trina, we always have a lot to cover, but I'm especially excited because we're gonna talk about something that you did this last week, which was a DIY rapid antigen test. And any of our regular listeners will know this has been something you've been talking about for a long time that we need, which are these do-it-yourself tests. So I just kind of want to walk through for our listeners how this exactly works. So did you, I mean, were you able to get this at a a retailer or did you have to order it online? How, How did you get it?
1: Well, as you said, I've been sort of on high alert for these tests to be available since the FDA authorized them for sale. They said that they were authorized. And so I've been waiting to see. And and last week, I saw that on a major retail pharmacy website, you could buy them. So I went out and I bought two boxes of two tests each. And two days later, they got to my house. They came to my house.
0: Well, you know, it doesn't get any more convenient than that. That's something we've been talking about that the healthcare system needs, right? Which is convenience and access. So two boxes arrive at your house, but I want to get one piece of information for our listeners, which is how much do those boxes cost you?
1: So they were, let's see, I think a box of two was $23 free shipping. So I think with taxes, it came to something like $25 per box. So, you know, $12.50 per test. But I saw some folks on social media posting that you could get them at the retail pharmacy in person in some stores for as low as $8 a box. So it looks like they are available at a lower price points some places.
0: Okay. So the box arrives, you know, you've ordered it, got there in two days, things are working pretty well, it sounds like so far. How complicated is this? What do you have to do?
1: Yeah. So this was, it was a little bit harder than a pregnancy test, a little bit like your kid's Chemistry kit. So you open up the box. There is a pouch with a card that you open up and flatten out on your desk or table. There is a swab to stick up your nose. There is a little, I don't know what you would call it, it's like a dropper with some kind of chemical in it and a large fold out piece of paper with the instructions. And so you kind of have to read through all the instructions first. There are not a lot of steps, but there's enough steps that it's not completely intuitive. So I opened up the kit. I opened up the instructions. I read through them. And then I endeavored to do the test.
0: Okay. Now, doing this test, is this the one that needs to go up your nose? How does that work?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. So, So what you do is you open up the card, you take out the little dropper, you drop six drops into one of two holes that's in the card. You have to do it in the right hole. and then. You pull out the swab. You wash your hands before all of this happens. You pull out the swab and you stick the swab three quarters of an inch into your nose and you rotate it around your nostril for 15 seconds. And then you do the same in the other nostril. And then you stick this now, you know, nostriled swab into the card, into this hole. And it kind of goes into another hole where you dropped the dropper chemical in. You swirl it three times and it basically starts the process. You close the card up, there's a little adhesive, so it sticks together, and then you watch for the readout. So if you follow all those steps, the test will give you your answer.
0: How long did it take to know the answer, and how do you know what the answer is?
1: Yeah, you have 15 minutes, it takes you 15 minutes, and it's very similar to a pregnancy test. One line, you're negative, two lines, you're positive. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. What an incredible process! And our first kind of in the field report of our DIY test, which we've been talking about for almost you know maybe even almost a year now.
1: Yeah, and, um, and I was negative. I'll say I'll say I was negative. So you know that was
0: <laughs> fair <crazy>. enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess with that in context, you know that's a very personal kind of micro story, right? Of, of how it worked for you. Now putting your other hat on, which is. You're a healthcare researcher. You've been following the pandemic all year long and reporting on it. What do you think something like this means, not only for this pandemic, but for DIY healthcare going forward?
1: I'd say that the history of DIY testing like this is is actually pretty long and and fascinating. And if you look at how long it took for, say, DIY HIV tests to be authorized or to be allowed to be sold in stores without a doctor's prescription, which is similar to this, it took years and years and years. And so I think that this represents a step forward for at-home, not doctor-mediated testing like this that the results come in your house, you don't have to send it out, you don't need a doctor to write a prescription, you can go buy it off the shelf. You know, We don't have a whole lot of those kinds of tests available for sale. Now we have this one. And so it'll be interesting to see if this leads to more. I'll say that the main push for this, it was a large number of public health experts who've been calling for this, including most prominently Dr. Michael Minna out of Harvard, who first kind of brought it to my attention, to a lot of folks' attention early last summer. And he's sort of been relentlessly out there advocating for the ability of these tests to be helpful to people individually to make decisions about whether they should go out and sort of set up that dinner with grandpa. But also on a population level, if everybody can be sort of testing themselves regularly like this, then enough of those good decisions will be made to not go out that you'll have the virus transmissions be driven down naturally like that. And so we'll see. I think we're kind of in the period of vaccinations being very helpful in terms of controlling transmission. And I don't know how much these tests will really impact this pandemic right now, especially at the price point they're at. But it is an interesting step forward for DIY healthcare in general. So let's pivot a little bit out of that and talk about the impact of all of this on the healthcare workforce and including the U.S. healthcare workforce. And we're hoping that this spring surge, maybe this is the last big surge in the United States and that the vaccinations and such will you know, help, at least in the U.S., bring things back to closer to normal. But for the healthcare workforce who's been through the last year on the front lines, then I think what we're seeing is more and more evidence that the workforce is tired and traumatized. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some new data out around that.
0: Yeah, that's right, Trina. And I think what's interesting about this or challenging about this is, look, we've had times in the past where we've seen data about healthcare workforce retirements, and they ebb and they flow. Some of that is due to new technology. Some in the past, healthcare workers have talked about the administrative burdens. They've talked about maybe having to see more patients in less time because of reimbursement or financial reasons. Well, we've got a whole new reason right now why the healthcare workforce is saying that they may no longer work in healthcare. And it's exactly to your point, it's the pandemic. And they have been traumatized by it. They have worked really long hours and often without break. So we've got data around this. The Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation ran a poll of the U.S healthcare workforce in late winter, early spring. And what they found was nearly a third, so 29% of healthcare workers who responded to the survey said, they're going to consider no longer working in healthcare. And I think that's just very illustrative of the real numbers. And by the way, even just if a fraction of the healthcare workforce acts on this feeling We could see shortages in certain clinical areas, in certain geographic areas. So this is definitely something that health leaders need to take very seriously. And I think all of us in society need to take seriously in terms of what are we doing to support our healthcare workers? There's another angle to this because the reality is, is that health workers live in the same communities and society we do, and they have the same pressures of the pandemic, not only from a clinical point of view, but also they have families, their kids may not be in school, they may have a spouse that's not working, you know, they're dealing with all of these same issues as well. So the interesting thing about the data is the data did drill down into some of the age demographics and the healthcare workers, the demographic that was most likely to feel burned out, surprisingly enough, at least surprising to me, was actually the youngest portion of the workforce, those of 18 to 29 years old. And as you move up those age demographic categories, actually the percentage of healthcare workers that say they are feeling burned out actually decreases. So in this case, kind of the older you are, potentially, the more seasoned you are, the less likely you are to say that you're burned out and you're struggling with some of the mental health issues of being a healthcare worker. Now, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because the reality is if you survey the general population as we have and other organizations have, we're also noticing that overall, the pandemic seems to be affecting a younger demographic more than it is an older demographic. And there's a lot of people who have posited why that may be, you know, in terms of the social isolation, people who may be younger in their careers, younger in their friendships, and in terms of companionship, not as settled in terms of what they're doing. And so the lockdowns and the stress may be affecting them more. We don't know the answer to that. I'm just, you know, there there are some that are looking at some of the reasons behind this. But the bottom line is, we cannot lose a large percentage of our healthcare workforce. And so health organizations need to find ways to really empower their workforce, provide additional mental health benefits, and provide some relief for all of these people working on the front line. Well, I know we started out with a very interesting look at DIY healthcare, which you provided, but we did get into a couple of very serious topics around what's happening in India and also with some of the burnout in our own US workforce. Trina, I'm going to turn it back over to you for a bit of some positive news. And that is, could you let our listeners know, where are we in terms of the vaccinations? How's it going?
1: Yeah, I think the positive news is that the vaccinations are working in the U.S. And we have data that is beginning to show that really clearly. And I think the first indication of this came out of Israel, which has used real-world evidence to show the the impact of vaccination on cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And I think Israel even reported recently a day without any deaths due to COVID-19 at all, which is just a wonderful thing. And we see the same pattern happening here in the United States. and so. Again, the Financial Times had this beautiful chart, beautiful because it's such a lovely piece of news showing how in the U.S., hospitalizations are declining in older, more vaccinated groups, even though we see the surges in cases in younger adults. And so what they did was they looked at the summer-fall peak outbreaks in the U.S. and then the winter-spring outbreaks. And if you compare the fall in hospitalizations from that summer-fall peak, so the decline in age is 85 plus, and then you look at the 18 to 49 demographic, you see that the decline in hospitalizations from that summer-fall peak took a lot longer. And they fell in a much more shallow slope compared to the age 18 to 49 group. But if you look at the winter-spring, which is when those vaccinations started happening, you see that the decline in the age 85-plus in hospitalizations was steep. It was precipitous. The 85-plus age group was not getting hospitalized at anywhere near the rate they were during that peak of that winter-spring outbreak. And the age 18 to 49, you can see that the slope was gentler and actually came back up because we saw the sort of little wavelet. That happened in the last couple of months. And so age 18 to 49, of course, we don't want anyone hospitalized, but the outcomes are better than in the age 85 plus. And so the fact that those folks are getting protected, getting into the hospital at a, at a much lower rate is wonderful, wonderful news. And it should result in fewer deaths, less crowded hospitals, less suffering, and hopefully an easing off of this pandemic in the United States. So I think this is encouraging news and is just reflective of the millions of us who have gone out and gotten our shot or two and worn masks, and that all of that has a really market effect on our most vulnerable folks that live in the United States. So for more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health.